I think in general, biology is so not just not just synthetic biology, which is learning how to build, but but certainly what you would think of as as systems biology, understanding how the how life takes inorganic materials, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, other elements, and, and puts them together in a way that makes them truly dynamic. So just, I think our, I think this century, we, we get to really understand how life operates. I think we start to get to kind of the, the, the core principles of that on a molecular level, a biophysical level. And then synthetic biology is what allows us to start being creative with it. Quick timeout. Do you exercise or want the best from your brain and body on a daily basis? I know I do. And if you do, you should check out Onnit's top performance line of brain and body enhancing keto, paleo, and pretty much everything friendly supplements like Alpha Brain, MCT Oil, and Total Human. Prefer a solid grass-fed whey or a double caffeinated drip to go hard? What about a powerhouse set of probiotics? They got it all and the science to back up their formulations. Plus, you can get a 10% off offer just for listeners by going to disruptors.fm slash onnit with two N's, O-N-N-I-T, and using coupon code disruptors at checkout. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash onnit, O-N-N-I-T, and using disruptors at checkout. They have everything that elite performers need, mentally and physically, to be at the best. Are you looking to grow yourself and your bottom line in the process? Do you need help scaling, growth hacking, and marketing, or with fundraising and introductions? If you want to 10x your business and build towards a sustainable future, be that a startup or a Fortune 500 company, I love helping businesses change the world for the better. I've been a founder, built startups and seven-figure businesses, coached and advised dozens and more, and learned my passion and purpose is pushing entrepreneurs to succeed. If you're a winner, aiming big, willing to go hard, and interested in potentially working together to uplevel yourself and your business, I'd love to chat. mattward.io slash coaching for more details. And now let's get on with the episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. If there is a god, odds are they're playing with some futuristic form of CRISPR and genetic engineering focused on quite literally coding and changing the core substrate of life. And that's what we're diving into today, the evolution of humanity and how we're now evolving ourselves. We have Andrew Hessel on the program. He's the CEO of Humane Genomics, a seed stage company developing virus-based therapies for cancer, starting with dogs. He also co-founded the Genome Project Right, an international scientific effort to engineer large-scale genomes and the human genome. Engineer, that means to create them. Andy's been a Singularity University faculty member since 2009, was a distinguished researcher at Autodesk Life Sciences for five years, and his goal is to help people better understand and use living systems systems to meet the needs of society. He's given over 100 talks and is one of the leaders when it comes to next generation biotech. In today's episode, we discuss how we can quite literally use viruses to cure cancer, the reason synthetic biology is the technology of this century, why CRISPR babies were an inevitability and why we didn't discuss them beforehand, how we can prevent biotech from becoming problematic and why Andrew isn't all that worried about bioterrorism, how healthcare and pharma transform as we edit the code of life, the important differences between our ability to read and write genomes, and what gene drives mean for the future of our species. 
And now, without further ado, I give you Andrew Hessel. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And we were just talking a little bit before we got started about how biotech is kicking off and the world is changing faster than any of us can, can anticipate. So I want to I get into that for you. What's your, what's your background? How did you get into the, this wild west of biotech? Uh, I was always a geek. I always loved working with, uh, with devices. And as I started to focus my career, I realized uh, I'm, I'm not that interested in, in dead things. You know, uh, they've all got a story. We know how to make them. And there's always someone that's, uh, you know, extremely skilled in understanding, uh, you know, the histories and operations, manufacture, et cetera. And uh, bio just seemed like this wide open, mysterious space where, uh, where the technology was still attributed to gods. But we were starting to uh, really, you know, peek in under the hood. The biology was shifting to molecular biology and really understanding the, the, the subcellular systems. And, and the field of genomics and genetics was, was opening up. We were starting to be able to read the code of living things. And I just found this so compelling that I, I just made it my primary focus. And I switched my programs to uh, cellular, molecular, and microbial biology with a specialization in bacterial genetics. And I've never looked back. It is an incredible field. So, so biotech, and I like that you brought up, it's like playing God. Well, were, you, were you religious? Did you grow up religious? Uh, I wasn't particularly religious. Um, uh, my mother was, but I, I wasn't. I, to, to me, the stories didn't make a lot of sense in the sense that if you, know, if you go back to the Bible, there was like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And after that, uh, how did the other people come around? <laughs> um, so, so, but that being said, I, I think that uh, all religions ultimately are trying to give us a sense of purpose and meaning and understanding of our place in the universe and, and give us some guidance. And, and for me, physics was probably my religion. It's, it's still bizarre to me that, that matter can be created, can't be created or destroyed, only changed. And, and we're still trying to understand where did the universe come from and how it works. The fact that we're living in this universe is, is, is really just magical. So this is your way of understanding the universe, of demystifying the world you see around you. Yeah, and and you know this is a living world. Earth is uh, unique in that right now. We still haven't got evidence of life anywhere other than Earth, and yet it's it's such a you know everywhere you look on the planet, there's there's organisms, and if you study microbiology, you realize this is truly a living world. Uh, just about every. Every environment you can imagine, if you sample it, you'll find some sort of microbe. But, but clearly, um, you know, there's just organisms everywhere. And what's, been, what's really fascinating about biology is that pretty much it all works on the, on the same paradigm. Everything's, uh, all living things are based on cells. And if you go in under the hood of cells and look at the machinery, it's pretty much a universal machinery with, uh, you know, it, it works pretty much the same way from a bacterium to human. And it's got a standard programming language, the genetic code. And for me, this was just a giant sandbox, not only to understand how it works, but how to learn how to manipulate it. And, and there were millions of other people trying to do the same thing. So it's the, you know, the community of biology, of biologists are, are diverse and fascinating and all trying to work on essentially the same problem. You're a kid in a candy store and everything around you is unexplored. It's it, it must be an incredible experience. Is that 
what drove you into the field? Where did you see the field headed? Well, my, my, my lens into the field was a little different than most biologists. I, I didn't study any particular organism. Instead, what I had had was years of experience already doing things like computer programming. So as I started to learn more biology and really start to look in under the hood of the living cell, uh, the the types of systems I saw there were were not so different than what I'd seen on the computer side. You know, for example, DNA is essentially uh, you know it's it's a linear molecule that is essentially a magnetic tape. Uh, there's there's a machinery in the cell to read that magnetic tape and and take the information out. There's other molecules that will go and write information to the tape. So it, I, I just found kind of the, the analogs and, and metaphors really fascinating. So I, I, I gravitated to the intersection of, of computers and, and biology and, and ended up in a field called bioinformatics, which is using computers to organize and analyze you know, biological data, essentially. So it was, a, it was a really good fit for me and today provides the foundation for you know, for the field of synthetic biology, which is, which is, you know, my, probably my greatest interest today in, in, in life science. Which is probably the field of this century. Do you think, do you think when you look at these examples, well, we'll jump into that in a sec. You brought up how it was similar to a metaphor for, for computers. Do you think, does that lend credence to you to the, the simulation hypothesis? Or do you think humanity builds in the way that humanity sees? Uh, I, I think I <laughs> put it this way. I, I was asked something very similar about the simulation hypothesis recently, and I said, "Look, we all live in a simulation. If you just believe biology, our brain is in a is in a bone box. It has no direct, you know, contact with the outside world. It, it's being fed information by all these sensors: our eyes, our ears, our skin, our nervous system, and we construct a model." of reality in our brains. So we do live in a simulation. I can't, uh, uh, I can't speak to, you know, to the entire universe being a simulation, but certainly my own existence is, uh, is very much a construct. And we were, uh, we actually had a similar conversation with Don Hoffman. He thinks we're living in a completely alternative type universe where everything that we see is being constructed around us. Everything that we feel are just different inputs. We can you can't even comprehend, but that the brain simplifies it because that makes existence and survival easier. It was uh, it was quite an interesting one. It's not out yet, but I'll make sure it will be when this goes live. So I would listen to that as well, guys, if this is interesting. But I got you here to talk biotech, synthetic biology, because that's that's your bread and butter. Is is that the industry? Is that what disrupts? Is that what transforms? Is that what defines this century? I think in general, biology is. So not just not just synthetic biology, which is learning how to build, but but certainly what you would think of as as systems biology, understanding how the how life takes inorganic materials, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, other elements, and, and puts them together in a way that makes them truly dynamic. So just, I think our, I think this century, we, we get to really understand how life operates. I think we start to get to kind of the, the, the core principles of that on a molecular level, a biophysical level. 
And then synthetic biology is what allows us to start being creative with it. And we have started to be creative. What do you think? We got to jump into the Chinese researcher and the CRISPR babies. What do you think about the ethics, the direction, and when that becomes more widespread or prevalent? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds of this. Like, clearly, this, this work was, was premature. It wasn't done with full transparency. There's a lot of issues that have been, that have been raised about uh, the consent, the, the target uh, in CCR5 and, and, and et cetera. But that being said, and, and that noise isn't going, that discussion want, is overdue. <laughs> I think that this has been a, a, a nucleating event to really make that discussion move from the theoretical to the real. And I think it's actually a really valuable thing in that way. But I, what I'm a little surprised by is the amount of, um, uh, 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 it's just the strength of the reaction. It's just, this is completely predictable. People have been saying for years that CRISPR technologies are really accessible and really affordable. It, these are the, the CRISPR work that was done was not particularly difficult. People have been doing this type of work now for six or seven years with, with pretty much widely available tools. And it builds on 40 years of in vitro fertilization technology that, you know, again, there's 8 million babies approximately that have been born by IVF. So taking two accessible and affordable technologies uh, and putting them together it was just going to happen. So this was entirely predictable. I think there's been a lot of, um, in some ways, overreaction to the announcement, given that at this point, the the claims made uh, haven't even been verified. But again, this is why I think it's an incredibly valuable uh, occurrence that, that now that this is in the public consciousness, and believe me, it has gone global, now we can start having useful discussions about, well, how do we manage this technology? What should be the consent procedure? What should be the path to, you know, what it, what is an acceptable gene editing, clinical use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm pleased to see that it's now, uh, you know, kind of in, in the global human consciousness. Are you worried that we overcorrect? Like you're driving a car and you see someone coming and you swerve out of the other lane. You're like, oh my God, I made it. But then you pull into the oncoming traffic and get hit. Well, I think I think we're seeing some of that, but that type of overreaction is just part and parcel of of, uh, of the dynamics here. You know, some people came out and, and absolutely condemned it. Other people were, uh, you know, other researchers said, hey, let's wait until we get all the information and, and really understand what the whole story is here. Um, if anything, there was, a, there was a lot of people, you know, feeling like they had to state a position on this immediately, even though it was not all the information was available. So, yeah, I think there's always a little bit of swerving before the, before the oscillations dampen, but I'm not too concerned. Again, this is this is these are technologies, both IVF and, and gene editing, that are already, I won't call them mature, but 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 they're accessible and affordable and widely used today. So it's not like they can be prohibited. I think that uh, uh, even if some countries or regions prohibit their use or condemn their use, there will be permissive environments as well. So I think that overall, uh, I don't think we're going to see a, uh, I don't think we're going to see this go away. 
I think what we'll start to see is is the discussion move from the theoretical to the practical. Do you think that other countries will take the lead because of the U.S.'s pretty traditionalist Christian type values? I've been saying for years that the U.S. has headwinds in life science that that aren't universal everywhere else. There are there are. Uh, it's not just religious and political headwinds. Uh, it's it's there's some technological headwinds as well. We have a we have a a well developed uh, and highly profitable biotech industry um, that you know may not want to see the core technologies change or new competition come in place. So there's you know between you know when you start adding it up, you know these are significant barriers. There's also just the litigation. Uh, we've the U.S. has a, a very robust legal system, and if anyone is is doing anything provocative or possibly uh, profit generating, it, the lawyers usually come out at some point. And and I'm not saying that any of this is a bad thing. It's just the dynamic of working in the U.S. And so I think that this makes it hard for the U.S. not necessarily to do the core research or or to to start advancing the ideas because because the US is is arguably the best in the world at at innovation and and in some ways translation of ideas from academia into industry but i think in this case in life science there are significant headwinds in bringing those those translations to market that that i i think other countries may be able to streamline a little bit more because of cultural differences but also learning from past experience or just having a blank slate to work on. If you were a venture capitalist focused on biotech, what country or what region would you move to to have the best deal flow? <sighs> that's uh, that's difficult to say. I think that you know the deal flow in biotech in the US has been impressive. A lot of new technologies have been developed here and are being developed here. I think that when it comes to translation uh, into the marketplace, you either have to be really selective about what you can bring to market in the U.S. Uh, and and there are there are plenty of things you can. It, it might the barriers might be higher, but there are there are ways to get things like new drugs and and food products, etc., into the marketplace. That being said, uh, some of the some of the R and D might be more efficiently done in other regions in the world. And I think that uh, I think in general, business is pretty uh, open to going to where the barriers are low and the taxes are low and the, and the skills are plentiful, etc. Uh, my speaking point on this is, is industry has learned to globalize over the last you know, 30, 40 years quite effectively. Uh, governments are still trying to figure some of that out. Yes, they are. So when people think of genetic editing, they think of CRISPR, yet there are many other other technologies that came before and others that are getting worked on now. Can you talk a little bit about those and also about what you guys do? I actually can't speak to CRISPR much more and these related gene editing technologies in any deep way. They're not my core focus. In fact, CRISPR isn't um, is a tool that um, I that I use in 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 my own work, but it's not the core tool. So I really don't want to speak outside of my area of expertise. No worries. You guys are focused on virus-based therapy, essentially finding ways of in, uh, implanting drugs via via viral methods. I know with dogs, is that is that what's up? 
Well, actually, I, I, it goes even deeper than that. So the way I don't look at myself as a clinician or even a bench scientist these days, I've, I've had the good fortune of being able to work at the periphery of a number of different fields. One of them, obviously, is life science. But but my interest in life science, as as I explained, is has been shaped by my interest in in digital technologies for the most part. So it's not even a, a pure life science interest. It's not like I woke up and said, I just want to be a biologist. I'm, and then I've also, I've also been exposed to business and business development and, 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 and industry as much as, my, as, much as uh, academia. So that, that's a rare position. Not every academic has, has worked for a large company, for example. And then I've, you know, most of my, my my day-to-day work is in communications and storytelling and kind of visioning the future. So this is a really odd intersection to be in, and I, it's hard to define what I do. But my, but my core interest has been, we've got this, this incredible tool now uh, that we call synthetic biology, which at, if you strip all the, the jargon away, what that essentially means is we have the ability to write the genetic material, literally synthesized DNA. That's kind of the core of synthetic biology. And that gives us the ability now to use digital tools to essentially start to design uh, or modify the metabolism of a cell. Or, or if the tools are powerful enough to actually design and build, construct from, from scratch, the genome of an organism. And, and this is a really new technology. I first heard the term synthetic biology probably around 2002, 2003. So this is a, a relatively new field. And over the last 15 years has blossomed into a, 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 an exploration of using these tools for important research and, and commercial development. But, you know, this is, this is uh, my interest here is, is one, what, what do those tools look like? What are the capabilities of those tools today? And, and what uh, are the high value applications that, that are within reach of the, of the current tool set? So, I didn't, I didn't start out to, you know, to really say, oh, I'm going to go engineer viruses. But my, my thinking is I like to start bottom up. And most of the groups that I met in the early days of synthetic biology were starting to essentially add new programs to bacteria, essentially taking a bacterial cell, which is a very complex machine, and, and add a new process to the bacterium's metabolism so it could make a high value compound, whether that was a drug or whether that was a biofuel or, or a, a new structural material, something like a bioplastic. That was what a lot of the field was focusing on. And, and I said, well, that's really good. And it makes for some great stories. But what if I was building a genome from scratch, what, what could I build today? And at the time when I was looking at this, this was around 2005, 2006, the, the tools really only allowed the construction of a synthetic virus, like a, a, to, to design and build a virus genome from scratch. So this is not surprising because if you look at the world of reading DNA, 
we didn't go and read the human genome first. We, we kind of, we started with the smallest genomes, which were the genomes of viruses. And then we moved to bacterial genomes and, and, and sequenced the first bacterial cells. And, 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 and we kind of moved up the, the evolutionary tree from there. Granted, the Human Genome Project lit a big fire under the entire sequencing world. So with synthetic biology, I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to start and build a genome from scratch, what, what can I do? Viruses were, were within reach. Um, only one scientific group in the world has written a, a, a bacterial genome, and that's Craig Venter's team. And it's taken an international effort about seven years to, to write the, the synthetic yeast genome, which is a eukaryotic organism much more advanced than a bacterium. So right now, given the current state of the tools, viruses are just are the low-hanging fruit. What can you do with viruses? Let's explain that a bit. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I just want to be clear. Most people typically think of viruses as being universally negative agents that, that just cause disease. And that's kind of a, uh, there's certainly some truth to that. These, these are, are essentially opportunistic agents that, re, that, that infect cells and take over cell metabolism often just to make more virus particles. Uh, it's, they were beautifully described by, uh, by one scientist, Eckhart Wimmer, as, as chemicals with a life cycle. But, but viruses are also incredibly powerful tools in the, in, in the life science lab because their natural job is to take genetic material and put it into a cell. And they do this in a very specific way. Like viruses are are essentially evolved to only infect certain cell types and, and to deliver their material, the genetic material inside the virus in sometimes very specific ways. So the way I like to describe a virus is they're essentially a USB stick, you know, able to load a program into a cell. And, and if you have the ability to write a virus from scratch, then you get to load the programs on the USB stick so they don't have to be just nefarious. So they're used in research uh, to, again, do gene delivery. They're used, they're probably have saved more lives than any other biological agent because viruses are, are the, essentially the foundation of most vaccines. You build what's either a, a, a dead virus that can prime the immune system for when the live virus comes along, or you build a weakened virus that has essentially the same form and function of, of, of the full strength virus, but, but it is easily defeated by your body. So it doesn't make you sick, but it still primes your immune system. So that's vaccines. And then, and then they're also the basis of gene therapies where you're actually delivering code to a cell to either repair it or reprogram it in some ways. So, uh, so they're incredibly useful tools, but as I started to do the research on synthetic viruses, you know, quite a while back now, the first one was made in 2002, so 16 years ago. Since that time, less than 30 synthetic viruses have been made, 30 different types and different species of viruses, essentially. And given that there's probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of viruses, you know, you can see that we're, it's just a drop in the bucket. We're just getting started. I don't know about you, but I do all my best work at coffee shops. 
And that's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, TunnelBear. If you want to protect your data while you're on public Wi-Fi, you don't want people stealing your passwords, your credit card information, or let them get into your business's back end, then check out TunnelBear. TunnelBear.com slash disruptors to support the show, secure your work on the go, and keep your team protected so they can be productive and safe anywhere they decide. And unlike other VPNs, expensing's easy. There's no licenses to juggle, no one-off invoices to manage. It's just fast, easy, simple. Stream movies from any country, regardless of what Netflix says. Run your business from Starbucks without worrying about hackers. And of course, all at fast speeds. Just visit tunnelbear.com slash disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Tunnelbear.com slash disruptors. For more details and to secure that Starbucks work that you know you're doing. And now let's get on with the program. Why has it gone so slow? Has this been a money thing? Is this something that pharma can't patent and make a ton of money on? What's the, what's the reasoning? No, there's. Uh, if you make something synthetically, you can patent it. So, so that's absolutely not a concern. I think that there's just been. Um, I think there's kind of a lag with any of these new technologies. Uh, synthetic biology is. You know, you can think of it as programming life, but programming life is still so unfamiliar and so few people are doing it compared to programming computers. I think that's, you know, really the the answer to your question here. Just not enough people have come to the field yet and started to explore, well, what does synthetic biology mean and what can I do with it? So I think that'll change. So, so as I said, I'm kind of interested in the core technologies. What design tools do I need? What do I need to print a whole genome? And then using that platform, almost like a word processor and printer or a 3D design tool and a 3D printer, what can I go make with that platform? And for me, the, the lowest hanging fruit was to go and make a cancer fighting virus. You know, that's, that's, you know, and when I say low hanging fruit, there's a couple of reasons for it. One, most people don't, aren't going to be too afraid of a virus that only hunts down cancer cells. They're going to kind of celebrate it as an, as, oh, this is a positive thing. Two, there's actually been a fairly uh, robust R&D enterprise running for the last 30 years on using viruses for exactly that purpose. In fact, there's already FDA approved drugs that are viruses for hunting down cancer cells. And, and then, you know, taking it to the next level, being able, to, being able to write this virus with synthetic biology gives us an incredible amount of, of flexibility over the designs of that virus. And, and if what we've learned about cancer is no two cancers are the same. So this gives us a really powerful programmable medicine platform, essentially, that we just didn't have before. So you know, that's, that's why I'm exploring cancer-fighting viruses. But the range of things that we could potentially do with viruses as the field of synthetic virology unlocks is massive. Uh, the only thing I can compare to is kind of like the proliferation of apps on the app store, you know, when, when the iPhone or Android phones were released. Like the, just the, the explosion of small programs that kind of add new features is, is, uh, was remarkable. Or the pill capsule, suddenly you have the entry agent, you can put medicine, you can put drugs, you can put whatever you want in. It's much, exactly. much easier to, to produce and sell. So on the cancer side of things, I've seen some pretty compelling compelling research that not all, but many cancers are, they, they require glucose to grow, they require sugar. I've seen some pretty compelling stuff that if you have cancer, uh, a ketogenic type diet can be very beneficial for 
essentially preserving other cells while starving the cancer cells of the the needed sugar. I don't know if that's something that's come up in your research. I, so I I don't look at cancer from the clinical end. I look at cancer from from a cell biologist perspective. And and so again, I've I've never worked in the clinical oncology area. Uh, I don't see patients. What I'm trying to do here is is what is, is take a very foundational approach to why we haven't solved cancer yet. And and one is it, cancer is is it, what's actually surprising to me is that we don't have more cancers because our bodies are made up of of literally tens of trillions of cells. Uh, quantified, it's somewhere between 30 and 50 trillion cells. Um, and each one of those are an independent uh, unit. Uh, so, so you can think of it almost as a, as a network of 50 trillion computers working together. And, and we know that, uh, you know, if you have a computer, you've probably experienced corruption of the computer. It's not working right. You have to reboot it. There's no rebooting cells. They're always running. So they accumulate corruption over time. And that corruption normally just results in cell degeneration and death that, you know, recycle the cell and turn it into a new one. Or it can become a flawed cell and it's no longer behaving properly in the network, but it doesn't die. And in fact, if it keeps reproducing quickly, we call it uh, a cancer. Um, and then, of course, if it spreads through our body, has if it acquires the ability to spread through our body, then it can crash other organ systems. But a, a cancer cell can start anywhere; it can start in any cell in your body, essentially. And if it if it can move around your body and crash important organ systems, it can kill you. But but the fundamental feature is all the same. It's got some sort of a corruption. So you know, my question is: so it's in in many ways it acts like an infection, except not with a not like a microbial infection or a viral infection. It's an infection with your own cells. And so wow, that's that's quite a challenge. I I don't care how you got your cancer you know, whether you're a smoker or whether you just, you know, didn't win the genetic lottery from your parents and had bad, you know, DNA repair systems. It's the job is always the same. We have to target the cells that are that are damaged or corrupted and, and in a specific way and eliminate them with as little toxicity as possible. That's the core job. And and we just haven't had the tools to do that with kind of a molecular precision until we had technologies like synthetic biology and DNA sequencing and and these this suite of tools that's really just opened up over the last twenty years. So you're you may be right. A ketogenic diet may slow a cancer, but it's not going to prevent the appearance of a cancer in the first place. And it's not going to be a cure because there's just so many cells. We, we, no, there's not going to be a one size fits all cure for cancer. So this is where I think we need to have a platform that not only screens for cancers when they're extremely early, not when you can feel a lump, but when you can actually identify just a, a few hundred cells perhaps. And we're starting to get that type of sensitivity now with things like liquid biopsies. So now we can have early, very, very early cancer screening at low cost. That, that's looking good. But you know, then you have to couple that detection with a really specific non-toxic treatment. And in the cancer world, we just don't have that yet. Uh, you know, we don't have that specificity, we don't have the low toxicity, and we certainly don't have the low cost yet. And that's where I see 
the potential for for synthetic biology, you know, whether it's designing viruses that hunt down cancer cells or whether it's designing some sort of engineered particle that might be virus-like, you know, hunt down cancer cells. That's where I see it kind of building a bridge and, and, and really changing the game. Absolutely. G- getting cancer is bad enough, but then if you survive the cancer, the, the chemo they're putting you through is essentially ruining your body and immune system so much that you're setting yourself up to get something else as quickly as possible. Oh, the, if you read the excellent book, The Emperor of All Maladies, you realize just how brutal and barbaric some of the earlier cancer treatments are. And now, you know, as we've started to move more into quote unquote precision medicine, it's improving, but uh, we're, we're, the tools are still so crude. We have to be able to understand any particular cancer. And it's not just, when you get a cancer, it's not just one cancer. It's actually a mosaic of, of different mutations and cells. You know, we have to be able to understand that at a molecular level and conversely, take that knowledge and turn it into a, a, into a therapeutic in a clinically relevant timeframe if we're ever going to get ahead of this disease. But I actually, I'm actually really positive about that, Matt, because, because if you look back over the last hundred years, the big win in, in human health have, have been vaccine products. And, and antibiotics, you know, were, if, if you rewind 100 years and, and look at what was killing us, it was infectious disease. And today, that's not as much of a concern because, because we have the vaccines and antibiotics that allow us to really nip it in the bud. I, I believe that cancer therapies are just a, are, are a, a class of antibiotics. Their job is to kill cells but they're just really personalized to your cells. So that's the revolution that I think we're, we'll see in cancer and synthetic biology and just and, and the ability to read DNA as well. So systems and synthetic biology will be foundational to, to really that success. I hope so, because the lack of systems approach to this point has led to a lot of the problems. I would say that we're extremely over-medicated at this point and extremely over antibiotic. To, I think our immune systems are certainly suffering from what, well, what we've gone through. Well, and, and, and then, you know, if you're like me and uh, I've had eczema for, for the last several years, it's, it's cleared up in the last while, so it's not bugging me. But, but that's just our immune systems being bored because we're not, we're not challenging them enough sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, go eat a poop. <laughs> it is actually really remarkable how, how, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, we're not getting cancer because the world is now all engineered with a whole bunch of crazy new chemicals around us. And two, how much our, our bodies have had to kind of adapt to just uh, living in a, in, you know, outside of nature for the last few hundred years. <laughs> Absolutely. You brought up, you brought up the, the spread of, we'll just call it synthetic biology and the ability of the individual to suddenly start getting involved in this. And there's a lot of positives, but there are some negatives as well. How do you how do you view some of those potentials, the potential for bioterrorism? How can we mitigate things like that? So this is another reason why I focus on synthetic viruses. Uh, I if there's if there's something that people should be concerned about, it, it's it's just viruses in general. If you every every time a new virus pops up, whether it's the flu, um, uh, you know, on an annual basis, or Zika, or MERS, or or even Ebola reaching U.S. shores in the last few years. The response that, that we have to do medically and in public health and epidemiolo- in, in epidemiology is, is massive. It costs, we mobilize billions of dollars worth of resources 
to go and, and contain these viral infections. And, and so right away, viruses are extremely important to, uh, you know, the control of viruses are extremely important to, to human society. I don't think that the technology for controlling viruses are up to speed today, given a world where, where it's possible to sit down at a computer and design a virus. So I think there's a there's a growing asymmetry to uh, between our ability to detect and remediate new viral infections in the world, and and the ability to design and create new viruses, both for good or for bad. And and so I this is why I've really been um, starting to I'm doing my best to raise awareness that we we need to change. And I just saw a National Academies report today on basically biosecurity in, in the age of synthetic biology. It, these, these reports are coming fast and furious today. The scientific community is getting up to speed and, and communicating that, yes, all of our old systems of, of kind of dealing with, with infectious disease and public health need a, a digital upgrade. But I think that there's a lot of organizations uh, that just, you know, aren't prepared for this yet, whether it's, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I had conversations with the FBI recently, just around, you know, updating them on some of these technologies. And they were like, wow, we knew they were there. We didn't think they were developing that quickly. I think, and, and certainly in my experience, communicating synthetic biology to more of a late audience it seems like science fiction to them. They've never been exposed to it. So I, I think that uh, a, a sensitizing event that isn't too harmful would be uh, would be a, a useful thing when it comes to synthetic viruses. You know, we need our we need our gene editing moment, so to speak. I analogize it in a lot of ways to cybersecurity in that it's infinitely easier to play offense than it is to play defense. While the incentives may be there to play defense. We we look at we look at hacks happening, and those are those are financial, those are monetary losses, and e- even those are hard to hard to prevent. It seems it seems inevitable, and I'm not sure you're you're much more in the in the weeds on this. Is there a way that we can do this effectively? Is there a way that we can do this? It's not even necessarily a malicious actor. It can be the guy in China, the guy in the U.S., the guy in London that wants to create X Y Z and finds out. Oh shit! That makes every every other person infertile. Oh, I, I actually just think that Mother Nature is actually really good at making some nasty stuff too. Let's not let's not underestimate you know her capability. Uh, there, right now, the field is 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 still pretty rarefied. So you can kind of wrap your head around who's doing what, and there are some real points to a you know where you can carefully monitor. For example, the, the the design tools keep thing in in the virtual space. It's only when you print that they you know kind of start to transition into the real world. So there's there you can start to monitor DNA synthesis uh, facilities, etc. You can even monitor the use of design tools and what are people trying to design here? Does it you know you can have checks and balances in the actual design systems? I think it's just time to start thinking a little more holistically on on this front. But yeah, there is an asymmetry in cybersecurity between the nefarious, uh, you know, going offensive and doing defensive. But but it balances out pretty quick. Uh, you know, case in point, we're all using our computers and networks today, and yes, we we find vulnerabilities. They get patched almost, you know, almost as quickly. The other, you know, the speaking point that I that I often remind people is like our bodies 
are really, really well defended against just about everything foreign. And, and it doesn't have to have seen that foreign agent before to be able to mount a response to it. it, it it's, it, it, there's a, there's, we've been co-evolving with infectious agents for billions of years. So our bodies are really heavily defended relative to our computer and network systems, which are still quite naive and, and early in their development stage. So to try and make a, a biological weapon and handle it correctly and actually affect a large number of people is actually pretty tricky. I'm not suggesting anyone should go out and, and test the limits of this. What I'm just saying is in the short term, our computers are probably a lot more vulnerable than our bodies. But, but that being said, uh, I, I, and I've written about this, as we get better at doing this type of design, as we're starting to make designs for, for positive things like cancer therapies and gene therapies, there, it, 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 and, and these tools for detecting viruses are, are become more widespread. Here, I usually say, look, we have smoke detectors in all our buildings and carbon monoxide detectors. Why not have viral detectors? It's not, it's not an impossibility. So as we start to be less blind and, and have, you know, understand these tools better and use them more, I think there's the potential to see uh, kind of precision uh, viral warfare more than, you know, the, than the idea of a pandemic. But, uh, but I don't think you can con- completely eliminate that type of, of threat. Uh, Mark Goodman and I wrote some, some piece, uh, piece about this in Wired UK, I think it was back in 2014, on kind of the, the biological equivalents of modern cybersecurity hacks, etc. What about gene drives and editing species, humans, animals, etc., the, the world around us? Wow, yeah, gene drives are, are uh, pretty powerful things. That's where you're actually negatively driving the evolution of a species, usually uh, because you just don't want that species around. The kind of the poster, the poster organism for gene drives is is the mosquito. I, I haven't found anyone that really loves mosquitoes. <laughs> anyway, the um, uh, the being able to being able to uh, kind of drive evolution in a certain sense. Uh, you know, towards a, a negative outcome is a, is quite a new thing. It doesn't uh, have to be negative, though. It no, it doesn't. Well. It doesn't have to be negative. You're exactly right. It's it's really taking over the evolutionary process and 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 making heterozygotes homozygotes and really just accelerating the pro- positive feedback loop, so to speak. But um, I, I I can't speak. Look, put in general, I'm 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 very conservative about releasing any genetically engineered or modified organism into the environment. The environments are so complex, we don't understand how they work. Uh, containment is not that hard, per, and doing lar- even large-scale development in a contained way isn't, isn't that difficult. Some of the greenhouses that you see today are, are massive. So in general, I think we have to be really careful about release of any organism into the wild because you can't do a recall. That, that, that being said, I really like the idea of doing a gene drive in an organism because we still don't have a way of updating somatic cells that is you know the cells that make up our body in a universal way you know we that's why we do that's why we do gene editing on an embryo because because the as the organism grows and divides every cell gets a copy of the gene edit but i think it would be really interesting to see if we can't do upgrades on our somatic bodies. But, you know, right now that technology is basically science fiction. So we'll just have to wait. 
So when you say somatic bodies, that's essentially I want to upgrade my brain 10%. I want to have 5% stronger leg muscles, et cetera. That's well, upgrades that are to an existing creature. Well, I'll, I'll, if you look at, you know, again, you if you think of your body as a computer network uh, with 50 trillion little computers attached to the network, if you don't have a way to go and load new software on each of those 50 trillion cells, you know, you're not going to be able to create a change, uh, at least a universal change. You know, sometimes you might be able to isolate it to, you know, as you said, to an organ, to the brain. But even then, how do you how do you go and load new software into into the billions and billions and billions of brain cells? You know, that would probably take some sort of a of a biological chain reaction gene drive type approach, except done uh, at the cellular level in a single organism. So a cellular upgrade, essentially, we've got Matt 1.2 loading that in. Yeah, uh, yeah, that that's kind of fun, but but you know, again, these things you you can talk about them theoretically, trying to do them, boy, that that's tough. We're we're still early days in a lot of this technology, which you know, again, I hope you hear the, the you know the the excitement in my voice. This is this is it's fascinating. Pro- programming life is is essentially a wide open sandbox right now that is that where you could go and do breakthrough things and it doesn't take a lot of technology this isn't you know if you're going to go launch a rocket into space it puts a team you have to put a team of engineers together you got to get a lot of materials and you got to you and, and 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 you're handling you know some really powerful technologies that are, you know, truly explosive. Uh, to go and to go and explore inner space, you you don't need large facilities. You don't need you you still need some some. You could be a group of people huddled around a computer today using a small number of tools, and you can go and do things that are just as breakthrough as going to Mars. And that's what I love about life science. And and yes, we have to be. We have to be respectful that that some people fear this stuff. If it does get released, it may not be controllable. But but we've been doing biology now for millennia. You know whether it's in agriculture and 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 selecting for crops that we want. Whether it's more you know whether it's in the last whether it's going and classifying the world's organisms as as you know people like Darwin did. Uh, and, and many other biologists trying to get a sense of, you know, just what what organisms do we share the planet with? To more recently starting to look at the molecular and genetic systems, you know, the, it's it's a it's a growing community, a growing platform that is universal and is I think is going to be absolutely essential for for our species because you know humanity is the only is the only organism on the planet that doesn't live in nature. <laughs> like we create our own environment and, and we, you know, we're, we're starting to understand that, you know, the resources on this planet are finite and, and we might have to, you know, have a more sustainable way of creating our environments. And I think biotechnology is going to be a big, big, big part of that. We're also the only creature to our knowledge that lives inside our own environment, i.e. our own head and thoughts, and have very much a, a different experience of the world regardless of the world around us. 
Yeah, we, we, in some ways, it's kind of, we live in dreams, don't we? <laughs> we? We live in dreams and we build the dreams we live in more, more or less. That's part of the purpose of this program is there's a lot of things happening, but most of the time when you hear about the future, it's probably from a sci-fi book or movie. So it's probably a bit dystopian because that's what sells and is exciting. But people are worried about the future because, well, it's dystopian, at least in uh, all the futures they can envision. You know what's dystopian for me? Uh, a cancer diagnosis. <laughs> like, seriously, that, that, is, that should just, you know, be the dystopian fear that everyone has because one in three of us will get it. So it'll, it's going to affect you or someone you know. And uh, I, I, I think really for the first time, we have the tools to, to kind of win at this game. But, but, you know, we can't look at it as, oh, uh, you know, I, I, I think we, we can't look at it as, oh, we're going to make a ton of money at it. I think we just have to get together and figure out how to solve this damn problem. And yeah, I understand the Hollywood aspect and, and they want to play with these ideas and make something dramatic. That's, that's fun. I, I did that last year working with ABC Studios on a show called The Crossing, where I got to introduce some of these ideas about viruses into the show. I think that's really exciting because most scientists don't, aren't, aren't storytellers. They don't think about you know, the societal ramifications of these things. Most engineers aren't storytellers. So I think we need the storytellers. But that being said, uh, it, these these technologies are are not universally bad. In fact, they're incredibly positive when applied properly, and they can truly solve some of the problems that we're that we have today. That 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 really make it hard for humanity. Whether it's whether it's things like cancer and other diseases, whether it's uh, whether it's just feeding people. I was in, you know, and just giving people opportunity. Life is the one universal we all have. Like we we, we all it, it it surrounds us. It it makes us, and yet it's the technology that we seem to have a blind spot to most of the time. I, I don't understand that. You often notice it's like your nose. You don't see it, even though your your body actually sees it. You just process it out because it feels so close. Andrew, yeah. oh, and I was, and and we don't pay attention to it until something's not working. <laughs> yeah, and then then we've got to blow it, Andrew. So I I know that you're a busy guy. I have one, possibly two, last questions for you. First one is, what is the one thing you would want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action, something before we tell them where to find you. Um, uh, I, I just want people to, to understand biology is programmable. Uh, it's going to be as programmable as computers over the next few decades. And, I, and to explore it, I, I want them to, to understand the basics of biology. But if they're younger and you're trying to think of what you can do for a career, uh, I want you to explore a little deeper because I think it's going to be truly the programming industry, the manufacturing technology of this century. Yeah, who cares about software for computers if you can make people better, stronger, smarter, sexier? I think we, I think we all know which sells better. Well, I, I want to be clear. You have to stand on that foundation of computers. I don't want to trash computers. We need it. And, and, and they've changed the world in incredibly positive ways. But, but, uh, but I think that when you program, when you actually program a living thing, you become the parent of it. And it is a truly, truly unique experience. And unless you've, unless you've tinkered with cellular metabolism and designed an organism, it's hard to appreciate. Being the parent, I think we would maybe take the grandparent role. It's a little easier. You get to drop them off, pick them back up and have, have a little more fun without the, without the stress. Where is the best place for people to find you, Andrew, and learn more about you and what you guys do? Uh, 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 probably my website, andrewhessel.com. Humane Genomics is where we're, is, is, uh, my prototyping company where we've been doing the virus work, but that's, uh, we're pretty much in stealth. I just do special projects out of that. 
we're working to found a, a virus fab right now. If you're interested in, in kind of making assembly lines for synthetic viruses, I'd love to hear from you. And, and really, the types of resources uh, that are out there today for synthetic biology, if you're younger, check out the iGEM program, I-G-E-M. Uh, which is International Genetically Engineered Machines. They've trained uh, tens of thousands started in the space, uh, set up some Google alerts for synthetic biology. Check out uh, neo.life, which uh, is an online publication about a, uh, coming up to two years old by the founders of Wired magazine that take a look at uh, really the, the, how biology is becoming digital. And uh, uh, and SynBioBeta, which is the industry hub for uh, synthetic biology. I think that'll that'll be a pretty good start. There's a ton of the books out there. Check out some videos that may be online that where I've done some introductions. Uh, but once you once you start to plant synthetic biology in your mind, once it once it gets past your mental immune system, you'll see that it's a field that's just emerging pretty much globally. It's a rabbit hole that absorbs everything. This is, in my opinion, hands down the most interesting and exciting technology of this of this century. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with you. Thanks for coming, Andrew. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thank you, sir. And if you guys enjoyed this, you know what to do. Check out Andrew and his company. And you can find us on disruptors.fm. You can find me on Twitter at MattWard.io. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.